Hey guys, it's Jackie, and I thought it was time we did a series on our bodies. I know, a painful subject. The pandemic hasn't helped. There's been Zoom calls and COVID pounds, and the bathing suit weather is around the corner. And no, this episode is not a push for you to join some beach body or diet program. What I want us to do is talk about why we dislike our bodies and how we might start living confidently in our own skin. Yes, even with Zoom chins and COVID pounds. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome back. This is episode one of a five-part series about our bodies. I started studying body theology, which, by the way, is a fancy way of just saying I wanted to know what God had to say about our bodies. I started studying body theology for a very practical reason. I didn't want my daughter to hate her body. That's how I got started. But I continued because of all the stories, women's stories of woundedness, pain, and damage, solely because they lived and moved in a female body. And let me just say, we women have legit reasons why we don't like our bodies. But, but God, God says that our bodies are very good. Just read Genesis 1 and 2. If you take some time, you'll notice that it was after God created woman that he said it is very good. Prior to that, he just kept saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. She is created, he creates woman, and he says, it is very good. Now, I think he was talking more about, more than just about woman, but my point here is what God said about your body, about my body, the female body. God said it's very good. And if that's what God said, why can't we? That's what we need to discover. And I will say it's partly because we've been told and we've experienced otherwise. We've come to believe that our bodies, our female bodies, are a problem. But God doesn't see our bodies that way. So we've got to figure out where is this disconnect between what God says and what we actually believe and how we actually live. It's been a decade since I started studying body theology. And here's where I've landed. Here's the question I'm pursuing. I'm trying to understand. And I think in understanding it, I will get some grasp on why we dislike our bodies, why we find them so problematic, and how we can change that. So I want to be upfront with you. My question is kind of deep. It's probably not the question you're asking at this moment. But here's my question. It's this. Why do I have one? 
specifically a female gendered body. Why do I have one? I've been told, and so have you, that my body is about being thin and sexy and giving birth, and then using my body to care for all living beings. Yes, that's a little sarcasm there, but we're not too far off. But that can't be all there is to my having a body, a female body. Because when I look at scripture, it seems to say that I'm female in the new heavens and the new earth. And I don't seem to be having kids, nor am I married. At least that's the way I interpret Matthew 20, 30. And yes, Scott McKnight, he's a scholar, very, very smart. He and I disagree on this. But for right now, I'm sticking with what I think Matthew 20, 30 says, which is we ain't married in the new heavens, new earth. So I'm gendered at the resurrection. I mean, we can detect this because Jesus, right, when he got up, he was still male. So here's the deal. I'm a female in the new heavens and new earth, and I'm a female here and now, fully female. What do I mean by that? Because there's all kinds of gender questions today, isn't there? Well, from what my doctor friend tells me, it means three things align within me. I have female chromosomes. And I have female hormones, just ask Steve. (laughs) I have female body parts. You can ask Steve that too. And I would add a fourth thing. I think I have a female soul. You can't ask Steve about that. He doesn't know. And I won't go to the wall with you about whether or not our soul is gendered. I think it is. That's what I'm sticking to. The point is I'm fully female in the here and now, and I will be in the resurrection. And if my body is about being thin, sexy, having sex, and babies, then what am I doing the rest of the time that I'm walking around in a female body? Because, you know, there are 365 days out of the year, 24 hours a day. That's a long time. The pandemic has made it feel even longer. And out of all that long time, right, 365 days, 24 hours a day, I do engage in the act of sex with Steve. Actually, I think kind of a lot. But compared to 365 days, 24 hours, nah, small percentage. So what's my female body for, for the rest of the time? What's the point? That's the question. That's the question I've been chasing. And I think the answer to it can and should and will inform how we start to rethink and live in our bodies. Okay, that's what I'm chasing. Stick with me, because we're going to cover several aspects. Today, we're going to cover how family and culture talk about our bodies. In episode two, we're going to talk about what the church says about our bodies. Episode three, I'm going to talk to a male pastor, and we're going to learn what men learn about male bodies. And then we're going to learn in episode four about what God says I'm going to end this series by talking about desire, which may not seem like it fits in, but if you stick with me all the way to the end, I promise it will. So let me take you back to the beginning, where I realized I needed to give some serious thought about our bodies, and it started with a very simple conversation I had with Madison when she was five. It was her first day of school. And we held hands as we walked to her elementary school, and she was wearing this beautiful little dress, and she loved dresses. And this particular one was this soft, flowy material that from side to side when you walked. You know what kind of dress I'm talking about. 
you like wearing them too. And just before we got to school, Madison stopped, looked at me and said, I look beautiful, mommy. Innocent enough, right? Except you know what I did? I lied to her. I lied to my daughter. I didn't mean to. I actually didn't know any better. I was a brand new Christian who recently moved to Texas to attend a conservative evangelical seminary. And somewhere in that, I learned, I heard it somewhere more than once, this statement. And I bet you can repeat it. It's not what's on the outside, but what's on the, that's right, inside that matters. That's what I said to my daughter. And that's when I lied to her. I was parroting what I'd learned in light of what the culture had said. I thought, well, you know what? It isn't all about how she looks. And so I thought, okay, this new statement, it's not about what's on the outside. It's what's in the inside. Well, that sounded righter than the culture was saying. Yes, I know. Writer isn't the right word, but I like it. It was righter than what the culture was saying. So I said it. And no sooner had I said it that the Holy Spirit challenged me. Basically, Spirit thunked me and said, if that's true, Jackie, then why do you turn around and look at your butt in the mirror when you're trying on a new pair of jeans? Yes, that's what the Holy Spirit said to me. Yes, the Holy Spirit said, but, B-U-T-T, I promise, that's what the Spirit said. And there I was, (laughs) convicted. I dropped Madison off, walked back to the house, and I determined from that moment on, I was going to figure out what's true. What's true about my body so that I could speak accurately to my daughter about hers? Because to be really honest, I wasn't really willing to figure out what it meant for me, but I wanted it for my daughter. See, I want Madison to live well in her body. I want her to know how to work, have fun, engage in friendships, and engage in sex in her body. Yes, I want my daughter to have positive body image so that she can be involved in acting in and on this world with agency and functionality as well as with passion. That's what started this crazy search for truth about body theology. And you know what I found? Not much. I mean, us Protestants, we haven't done much work. And I know I might get in trouble for saying this, but most of the work we've done sucks. We have no idea how to talk about the body. When I researched how evangelicals talk about the body, I bet you can guess what they teach. It's all wrapped around sex, and getting a man, being sexy or not, depending on if you're married or not married, sexy after marriage, cover up before, no tempting the men, except after. They can't control themselves. It's it's crazy what we are teaching about the body. It sounds a whole lot like the Gnostics back in Paul's day, way back when. The Gnostics spoke about the material world, i.e. the body, as bad and the spiritual world, i.e. the soul, as good. And Paul, he refuted those ideas in his letter to Colossae, to the Colossae church in Corinth. He said, no, no, the body is good. We're going to find out more what Paul has to say when we get to that episode. What God said is it's very good. 
And we need to know why God said that. What did he mean? Why did he give us a body, particularly a female body? Which, by the way, if you're interested in this topic, which I suspect most of you are, I've got this mini course. It's three lessons on body image, and it covers this theological material as well as giving you practical exercises that will help you replace your negative, not enough narrative with God's truth, with practical ways to change the way you see and live in your body. And you can find that information out on my website called themarcellaproject.com. And I'll also post it on the Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group page for those of you who can't spell Marcella, which is M-A-R-C-E-L-L-A. It's not a normal thing. So, And if you haven't already, would you subscribe to this podcast? That would be so helpful for us getting this kind of teaching out to other women and men. I seriously, seriously would appreciate that. Okay, so back to the Protestants. Protestants haven't done a lot of scholarly work on the body. But the Catholics, the Catholic tradition has. Pope John Paul II taught 129 addresses on the body over a five-year period, which I learned about when I enrolled in this seminar taught by Christopher West, you can Google it if you want, who explains Pope John Paul's teachings, because he's kind of hard to understand. So I took a weekend course with Christopher West on body theology to help me understand Pope John Paul II's teaching. And it was really good stuff. It takes you so far, but mm, not really far enough. It didn't fully answer my question. Remember my question? Yeah, I started down that path with that conversation with Madison when she was five. But I've stayed on this journey for the last decade plus because of your stories because of women's stories, so many, (laughs) across all ages and stages, stories, stories of sexual abuse, domestic violence, self-hatred, sexual objectification, body shaming, body harming. Your stories have done me in. The toxicity of the stories, it told me that something was amiss Something is deeply, deeply wrong. Stories from young girls, young, beautiful, just starting out, future ahead of you high school girls. I taught 40 of them one time, and it was during a breakout session. I wasn't the teacher during the breakout session, but it was during this breakout session, this this woman handed out to each woman a piece of paper and a blue-colored pen, all the same paper, all the same pen. And on that paper were a bunch of questions like, are your parents divorced? Have you ever had same-sex attraction? Have you ever considered suicide? Have you ever gotten drunk? And they answered these questions, and they didn't put their names on it, all in the same blue pens, and then they passed them to this woman who collected them, mixed them up, randomly passed them back out, and she gave the young girls this instructions. When I read out the questions, if it is answered yes on the paper that you are now holding, you need to stand. No words, just stand or sit. And so she started reading through the questions. And one of the questions she asked was, do you dislike your body? And here's the thing. It was the only question where every single girl 
stood. Every single one. And let me tell you, some of those girls, like, they were like model-like. And they stood too. And I remember thinking, wow, if they're not okay with how they look, then what's the hope for the rest of us? I want you to think about that. They all stood. When is the last time you've seen 100% buy-in on any idea? 100%. This should tell us how powerful these not enough messages are that we're hearing. Women dislike their bodies, and not just young women. I'd like to chalk it up to their youth, but unfortunately, a few days after that teaching, I was at a dinner party with a bunch of mature Christian women, both chronologically and spiritually. And as I was sharing what these 40 young girls said, one woman shared how she doesn't like being naked in front of her husband because she doesn't like her own body. And another woman shared, <clears throat> excuse me, how she struggled with aging. And I get that. I'm 55 and my neck is wrinkling. And some mornings I wake up and my eyelids sag so low, I like I can barely see open my eyes. Aging is a new experience for me. And I got to be honest with you, it takes some serious courage and truth to anchor a woman as her body decays right before her very own eyes. But I got to be honest also, like I'm 55 and some of this is, uh, you know, there's freedom on the other side of this because no one no longer expects me to have like perky breasts or butts. The butt is supposed to sag at 55. So there's freedom in this aging. But it's going to take like bravery to beat back these not enough narratives, especially in a culture that values um, youthfulness, right? It's going to take courage, easier warrior kind of courage. So there were these young high schoolers and these very mature, both chronologically and spiritually, 40s and 50-year-old women. And then I was at a war- wedding party. I was actually in the wedding party. I was in my 50s and all the other wedding party were 30-year-old women. And we spent that day getting ready for the wedding, and there was hours of primping and prepping. And I had no idea that people spent that much time getting ready. Thank you, Mom. You raised me to, like, just show up with what I got is what I got. It better be good enough. We'll get to our mothers in a bit. But let me just say this. That room was full of amazing women, and it was also full of self-deprecating statements about their bodies. And after a while, it started to feel like I was swimming around in verbal vomiting. Vomit. That's exactly how it felt. Stories. I've heard them from every age, in every station, every position, in every place. Stories of women that talk about the hemorrhaging, raw pain, wounding, and self-loathing. And Jesus... Jesus wants more for us than that. I mean, he said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Well, these stories, they don't sound like living fully alive in our bodies. In fact, it sounds a lot more like stealing and killing and destroying. It's definitely bondage. Bondage that manifests itself in all kinds of body obsession, body neglect. For example, one out of every five women struggle with eating disorders, 
You may not be surprised by that statistic, but did you know that middle-aged women are the fastest-growing population with eating disorders? Did you know we spend over $62 billion on cosmetics and cosmetic surgeries are up by 115% since the year 2000? With the invention of FaceTime and Skype and now Zoom, there's been a rise in chin implants. Surgeons attribute the 71% increase to women's disdain for what they see in the mirror or on the screen. And by the way, that stat was something I found prior to the pandemic. You and I both know it's higher now. See, instead of living free in Christ, we are frantically chasing after this ever-elusive perfect body, and it is literally killing some of us. And the rest of us are living in bondage to this not-enough narrative. When Jesus said he came to give us abundant life, he meant it. He meant we live that abundant life in our own bodies. God's heartbeat for you and for me is that we'd be free enough to look in the mirror like King David did in Psalm 139, where he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. If I had to give that an updated statement, it would be he was saying, naked, I think, in front of a mirror, whoa, check me out, because I am so enough. So how did we get to a point How do we get to that point where we can confidently proclaim, like David, whoa, check me out? Well, I I think a good place to start is by identifying the toxic messages we've been receiving. And then ultimately, we're going to have to replace it with God's truth, not just intellectually, but with our actions, right? Our beliefs actually shape our behavior. Romans 12, 2 says... Paul calls this the process of renewing the mind, which then the body is supposed to be also involved in that, right? I don't know if you know this, but the mind is actually in the, yes, body. The soul is in the, yes, body. We are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. That's all in the body. Yeah, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. As I said, this is a process It's going to take courage, intentionality, and a whole lot of dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit because there is a battle waged against our bodies, our female bodies. But we do not have to be afraid. We do not have to be defeated because 1 John 4 says, 4, 4 says, he that is in us, meaning the Holy Spirit, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And so I want to start with the toxic messages that we get in our home, and in the culture. We'll get to the church in the next episode. Okay, according to the Webster Dictionary, if you googled body image, it says this as the definition, an intellectual or idealized image of what one's body is or should be, the subjective concept of one's physical appearance based on self-observation and the reaction of others. There it is, the message we've heard over and over again. Right, this idea that what the body, the ideal is ideal image of what our body is or should be. And where have we heard that message? Well, first and foremost, we've heard it from our moms. We start to develop body image at very early age. 
And before the age of 10, the most influential woman in our life has the greatest impact on how we view our bodies. Now, that could be an aunt or grandmother or an older sister, but for the sake of it, I'm going to call her mom, which, by the way, it's not always the mother figure. It can be a male figure, but the majority of the time, studies show it's mom. And I bet you've probably never taken the time to think through the messages your mom passed along to you about the female body. So let me get you started with a few questions, and I'll post them on the Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group page so that you don't have to write them down while you're driving your car, cooking, or cleaning, or whatever it is, working, whatever you're doing. Here they are. What did your mother say about herself? Her hair, smile, waist, legs breast. What about her fashion? What did she talk about, about clothes, her clothes, your clothes, other women's clothes? What comments did she make about the appearance of other women? Did she body obsess, diet, over exercise, or body neglect, bulimia, or simply ignore that she even had a body? Take a moment to think about that. What did your mom communicate to you about the female body. If I had you write down a few words to capture it, what would you say? These questions, I have posed them to hundreds and hundreds of women around the country, and their answers are always toxic. Not thin enough, diet after diet, constant attention to the weight, what I ate, don't go out of the house without your face on, meaning makeup, I remember one woman sharing how her mother made her shave her arms at a young age so other girls wouldn't notice her ethnicity. Regardless of where or to whom I've posed these questions, the answers are the same. They are negative, there's a disdain, and a deficit, as if little girls have learned that their body is a project for alteration. It needs fixing. In her research, Nivida Paran, a guru in the interaction of body and culture, found that it is rare for girls to find a woman who models comfort and acceptance and pride in their unaltered body. Think about that. How long has it been since you've, uh, you've seen a woman who models comfort and acceptance and pride in her unaltered body? Yeah, that's where I need to say, yay, mom, thank you. I think my mom is the only woman I know that actually models that. It's hard to come up with someone. And that's a warning for those of us who have influence over young girls, isn't it? We need to pause and consider, what are we communicating about the female body? I suspect most of us are falling way short of God's very good story. And we need to take note. How is our body, our view of our body, impacting how others view theirs? So after the age 10, the greatest influencer on body image is, you got it, the media. But you you may not know, that's not always been the case. It actually wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that we saw the shift in the way a woman's worth was measured. So prior to the Industrial Revolution, there were not a lot of photos depicting what the ideal woman was supposed to look like. Societies that were pre-Industrial Revolution were mostly agrarian, where the home was the productive economic unit. 
And during this era, a woman's value was in her work skills, her economic shrewdness, her physical strength, not so much in her beauty. In other words, she had to have some meat on her. I mean, after all, it took somebody with some meat to be able to throw a bale of hay or work in the fields. If you've ever visited the Louvre in Paris or the Metropolitan Museum in New York City, you've seen paintings, old, old paintings of women's bodies, and they are anything but thin and sexy, right? They are absolutely nothing like what we see today. And as I've mentioned, much of the creative work that had been done in the home was now being done in factories during the Industrial Revolution. Women found themselves comparatively idle. It's during the Victorian age, this age, where there is an increase in suicides amongst women due to boredom. This is where the shift really starts to happen. Women were no longer valued for their work, but rather for their looks. This is an era in which a caricature of female form became fashionable. The tiny corseted waist and the huge bustles to accentuate the hips, right? They came about. Women became prized for passivity rather than productivity. Now, coinciding with this shift came mass factory production of clothing. Clothing. I bet you've never considered this. Standard sizes were instituted rather than clothes being made for the individual woman for her individual shape. Consider the impact this had on the woman's body image. I mean, how many times have you tried on a pair of pants only to find that it fit in the waist but not in the length? Or every time we try on a pair of pants, our mind goes to this thought, not enough, right? If only my hips were, if only my legs were. Every time we buy clothing, we are reminded our bodies aren't enough. This is also when the development of photography came around, where there were visual images of perceived beauty. Most of our assumptions about what it means to be a beautiful woman date back no further than the 1830s. So visual imagery is very powerful. We know this. Women, some, some attribute women shaving their legs to a photo of Marilyn Monroe where she had um, leg hair colored out. And from her photo, women got the message, beautiful women shave legs. And from there on out, women were measured not by their giftedness, but by how closely they could emulate the woman imaged in media. Consider the impact this has on our body image narrative. 20 years ago, when I saw a female model, she was the size eight. Today, she's a size zero. That is the image women are to emulate, even though the model's body shape, size, and weight are actually achievable by less than 1% of the population. LaSalle Peterson concludes, and this is what she says, never before has a society been so saturated with images and bombarded with the appearance of idealized women in every state of dress and undress. In non-image-based societies, a woman may feel comfortable being compared to other real women in the neighborhood, but the media produced women who are unlike the women in one's own village or neighborhood. I remember walking through the mall with my teenagers, and as I was walking by one of the store windows, I stopped. On the window was this life-size poster of a woman in a bikini, and I asked the kids to tell me, what's the message you're getting about a woman's body from this poster? My teenage boys really appreciated me pointing it out. And then I said, okay, look around the mall. Look around. Come on. Take your eyes off that. Now, boys, look around the mall. 
Do you see anyone who remotely looks like that woman? Yeah, my kids hated going out with me. (laughs) I didn't stop the lesson there, though. I remember the summer we spent serving in Africa. And when we finished our month or so in South Sudan, we traveled from South Sudan up through Egypt on our way to Israel, where I was going to be able to take some courses studying Jesus. Very great stuff. Anyway, on the way to our trip, Um, from South Sudan to Israel, we passed through Egypt, and we stopped at this resort by the Red Sea. And unbeknownst to Steve and I, it was a topless resort. Again, our two teenage boys were very thrilled. There were a whole lot of young Russian gals on the beach, topless, and they were checking it out. But there was also grandma playing volleyball in the pool, and I made sure that they took note of grandma's breast too. Because someday they're going to get married. And when they do, and their wife ages, her breasts are going to look like that old lady's breath. And so they're going to have to look at the whole picture. Yep, I was that kind of mom. Aren't you glad you didn't travel with me? The point is, today a young girl sees more images of unattainable unattainable beauty in one day than their mother did in their entire adolescence. So let that sink in. My daughter, your daughter, our sons see more images of unattainable beauty in one day than we did our entire adolescence. And with technology, we're able to create images that aren't even real I heard a story of a model who went to a grocery store with her friend, and she grabbed a magazine with a beautiful woman on the cover, and she said to her friend, why can't I look like this? Only to discover the photo was of herself. In Paran's study, um, she supports LaSalle Peterson's statement. She says this, Girls in early adolescence live a more intensely objectifying and sexualizing world where their value is determined by obtaining a second look from members of the privileged group holding the lens, and that would be the guys. She also goes on to say that girls in their tweens are busy with the body practice of beautification and sexualization. Let me say that again. Girls in their tweens are busy with body practice of beautification and sexualization, such as hair straightening or bleaching, body or facial hair removal, varied makeup applications, dieting, compulsive exercising, finger and toenail treatments, shopping for the perfect outfit, on and on and on. These body practices, you know what they do? They shift our girls' focus, time, and energy away from acting in the world to working on their own bodies. And as they do, they are constantly reminded that their body is deficient and needs repair. And advertising plays on our sense of deficiency, doesn't it? Just take a look at the history of advertising. It starts in the Industrial Revolution. Well, actually, it doesn't, but we're going to start in the Industrial Revolution. And there, at that time, there was a rise in the product, product production and in the middle-class wealth. And the economy depended on women purchasing more and more goods. The purpose of advertising was to create a desire for something you didn't have. And the side effect was a newly found unhappiness in the self. Today's advertising, it's shifted. It's shifted from selling a product, like a new stove or a toaster, to selling a value, to selling an image. If you purchase this, 
You will be successful, worthy, lovable, sexy, popular. Images now tell us who we are and who we should be. And many of those images tell us our worth is tied to being thin and sexy. Susan Brownmiller in her book Femininity observes that it's not only an idealized feminine form, but also a highly sensualized version of the female body that is used in the public square. In other words, the normal function of various parts of the woman's anatomy are hidden under the weight of their potential sexiness. Take eyelashes, for example. Men and women have eyelashes for the good purpose of keeping harmful particles of dirt and small bugs out of the eyes. For women, though, eyelashes have become a site of sex appeal. They need to be thick and long and rich and full and dark. And any other na- other words of cosmetic industry products that they label it with. Legs, that's another example. Men and women have two legs for the primary purpose of personal locomotion. That's what your legs are about. I remember when my daughter Madison worked for a homeless immigrant shelter for women and children. And one of the women was from Africa and they had... Um, migrated to the United States. I don't know, somehow they got a flight to Latin America and then from Latin America hiked, pregnant by the way, the whole way, over a thousand miles. And she looked at my daughter one day and she said, you have great legs, Madison. They carry you far. You have great legs. Now, she wasn't saying that Madison had great legs because they were tan or thin. She actually was recognizing the primary purpose for Madison's body. And what she recognized is my daughter's legs would actually keep her safe. They could actually hike her a thousand miles to a safe place to live. That's the reason we have legs. But let's be honest. Most of us aren't thinking that way when we think about women's legs, right? Legs have become measures of sensual appeal. They need to be thin, shapely, shaven, tanned, and smooth. None of these attributes increase their usefulness, by the way, in moving the body from here to there. But the attributes have become more important than the function. Ladies, the expectation is high, and the rewards are real about having this ideal body. You and I both know it. Studies indicate that beautiful women, societal standard of beauty, beautiful women are more likely to get better jobs and higher pay. Beautiful women are also perceived as being good. We have this irrational but deep-seated belief that physically attractive people possess other desirable characteristics such as intelligence, competence, social skills, confidence, even moral virtue. It's a reality in our life, isn't it? We've seen it play out in the bar, and we've seen it play out in the boardroom. I had a friend of mine ask me the question, well, Jackie, if it really is a reality, what are we supposed to do, not play the game? And I'm like, I don't know. Whose story are we going to buy into? The cultures or God's? Which story are we going to live by? I think this should make us pause and ask some questions. Questions like, how have I bought into this cultural assumption about the female body? Have I been complicit in it? Which narrative am I living in? Do I believe what the culture tells me about my body's worth? Or do I believe God? 
which one am I actually living? When I think about all of those comments, all of those stories of women and girls who dislike their bodies, I think, I think something is terribly wrong. If God said our bodies are very good, then we have to f- ask the question, why don't we believe it? Why aren't we living in our bodies like they are the site of very goodness? And does the fact that we are not mean that we've bought into a bunch of lies, perhaps even sin, perhaps even systemic sin? Sin isn't just about our individual imperfections that demand a personal salvation. Sin, systemic sin, is when sinful attitudes and behavior become acceptable norms. What's become acceptable norms about our bodies? Are they what God says about our bodies? Or are they sinful attitudes and behaviors that have become acceptable norms and have permeated every fabric of our society? Systemic sin is happening against the female body, and it has huge, huge implications for you and me. So stay tuned, because next week we're going to talk about how the church talks about our body. And again, check out the mini course on body image on my website, themarcellaproject.com. And if you found this podcast helpful, pass it on to a friend and be sure to subscribe too. Thanks. We're just getting started. We'll be back here in two weeks. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.